Well, we are going to start the Gospel of Luke today. I'm so excited to start the Gospel of Luke. It has been a fantastic day of worship already with you as we worship in song, as we all recovered from that first song, Ding Dong Merrily on High. How many got, who all got all the words to that? Anybody? A few. I appreciate it. Yeah, Irene, I know you did. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, uh, music team. It's just fun uh, to be together, fun to be reminded of truth. Um, I always note that music is such an important thing for us. As we've joked about before, nobody leaves humming the sermon. You leave humming the music. And music really is catechism. It's the way that we remember and know truth. And amazingly, I was having this conversation just with somebody, I believe it was Friday night, and I've seen it a number of times. Um, someone who uh, maybe uh, mentally is, is starting to, to have uh, memory issues, things like that, and you start to play some music, and all of a sudden things recall, and it's like perfect recollection, and it's just amazing what music does, and it's amazing the way that it sticks in our minds, and so that's why I'm so thankful for a music team that brings us good music. It's good. It's fun. It's enjoyable to listen to, but also it's packed with scripture and truth. I think that's such an important discipline for us to be a part of each and every week. So I'm glad and thankful for our team that serves us so well each and every week. We'll talk more about that, actually, because we have a few songs coming up in Luke as we start this gospel. It's going to be an exciting journey. So we do start the gospel of Luke today. This will be a longer study, 24 chapters long, 1,149 verses that we're going to do together, and we will read every one. We will make comments on every one. We will make our way through the gospel of Luke. I've laid out uh, about through May or so, as far as our study goes, um, I don't know exactly how long this study will take us, and we'll take some breaks here and there. We'll break again for our Summer in the Psalms series this next summer, so we'll do that during the summer. We'll have some one-offs here and there. There are actually a few proverb topics, themes that I want to come back to, so we're going to hit a few of those. We'll have some guests that preach from time to time, but for the most part, uh, your Bible should start falling open to Luke uh, within the next few weeks, and that is how it should be for a while. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke. As we make this transition into the Gospel of Luke, it's a New Testament book. We've been in the Old Testament, so if you just take your Bible, the big picture of your Bible, you have two testaments. You have pre-Messiah, pre-Jesus, and after Jesus has come. And the Old Testament contains a number of different works. You have uh, different genres, really, uh, different types of literature. You probably studied about that in school, where you had uh, different genres and types of literature. You have historical narrative, just telling us what happened. You have prophecy, telling us about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, sometimes prophecy in the sense of calling out, it's prophetic, calling out the people in their time. You have poetry, poetic reflections on what's going on. And then you have what could be called prose discourse. It's uh, didactic material. It's teaching material. You have that as well. So that's really the Old Testament. And we were in the book of Proverbs for a long time. And we all know what Proverbs are. They're these pithy little statements that are designed to capture the essence of truth and designed to maybe correct, encourage, rebuke, just to convey wisdom. And so that's what we've been doing in the book of Proverbs for a while. Well, we are making a really big genre swing now, so I do want to just take a minute and talk about that. 
because it makes a difference in how you read it, how you understand it. You know, I referenced a few weeks ago uh, newspapers. Some of us still remember those, the papers. Some of you still get the newspaper. And there's different sections. So you got the money section, the comic section, you got the ads, you got, you know, the front page sports section. And you read each of those articles in light of what they are, correct? Uh, You don't read the political satire in the comics in the same way that you would read maybe the money section or the sports section. Uh, You read them in light of where they fall. And so the Bible is that way to some degree. There's different genres and it's meant to be understood in a different type of way. Um, No less true one genre than another, but they do need to be understood and referenced for what they are. And so today we're jumping into the Gospel of Luke. This will be our uh, title, well, our title here, More Than a Myth, Introduction to the Gospel According to Luke. We're going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end, this idea of myth and truth. For now, let's get into the outline. I'm asking five questions this morning. The first couple are going to be sort of getting us ready to get into Luke, and then the last few we'll be diving into the text itself, the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Let's talk about, I mentioned the Old Testament, different genres, different types of writing in the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. What do we have in the New Testament? About a third of your Bible is the New Testament, and it's made up, basically, it's structured like this. So, you have the books, the genre, and the subject, and this is pretty simple to follow. The books, you have the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, and what the Gospels are, it's a narration of the life and the ministry of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. So the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospel accounts that we have in the Bible. Acts takes it from there, and Acts, the book of Acts, picks up right at the end of Jesus' life, after he's resurrected, right before the ascension, it records the ascension of Jesus going back into heaven, and then it's about the establishment of the church, its narrative. It's telling us what happened. Then we have the letters. Another word for that really is epistles, these organizing documents of the church. And a lot of it's uh, personal correspondence. Paul wrote many of the New Testament letters, but we have some others that wrote as well, like Peter and John. And they're writing letters and they're clarifying doctrine and they're, they're talking about personal practice in holiness and what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And then the last book of the Bible, Revelation, It's apocalyptic genre. It's very different. It reads very, very differently from the rest of the New Testament. It reads more like some of the prophets from the Old Testament. And it's all about the return of Jesus. All right, class, let's try this out. The far right column, what's the common feature that we find in the far right column? Right, we got it. We're awake. Anybody needs more coffee? Everybody good? It's about Jesus, of course. The New Testament centers on the person of Jesus. This is so easy to see. So the Gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus. Acts is telling us about the establishment of the church of Jesus. The letters, instructions to followers of Jesus, both individually and in community. And then the final book is the return of Jesus. So everything centers around him. So think of it this way. Old Testament, if you just open your Bible somewhere, just let it fall open. If you are in the first two-thirds, you're somewhere in the Old Testament, and that's pointing you to Jesus, all right? If you fall in the New Testament, 
you found the section that talks about Jesus and his life and ministry. It all relates to him in a very, very direct way. And so we get into the gospel of Luke this morning, and we get to talk for a while now about, uh, about Jesus in a very specific way. It's been a few years since I did a gospel here at Sunrise, and so I'm excited to jump back into one. I did the gospel of uh, John uh, years ago, but it's been a while, and so I'm excited. I've been wanting to get back into a gospel, and this is the one that we're going we're gonna to look at and choose. So let's talk about Luke. What is Luke? Let's talk about the book and give you just a little bit of preliminary information, and then we'll get into it. So what is Luke? It's one of the counts of the person and work of Jesus designed to establish Jesus as the Messiah. All right, so just in simple form, why do we have the Gospel of Luke? What is the Gospel of Luke doing? It's designed to help you be absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're here this morning and you're not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, you're not sure it's important if you care if Jesus is the Messiah, or maybe you have your questions or doubts. Maybe you're one who's here and you are absolutely convinced that's who Jesus is. This will help to build your faith, and it's going to help you to understand what it means to be his follower, to live as a follower of Jesus. So that is what the, the gospel is in a nutshell. Luke is also one of what's called the synoptic gospels. I'll probably refer to that term a few times throughout our study of Luke, and that'll become clear as we move along in the story. So Luke's one of the synoptics, along with Matthew and Mark. Um, These books are similar, all right? So I picture it sort of like this. This is not a perfect illustration by any stretch, but I think it will give you the idea of what's going on. If you picture Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then John, all right? So let's take Matthew, Mark, and Luke for a second. You have Luke in front of you, and many of you are gonna go home this afternoon and watch some football on TV. You typically have two guys in the booth. One's giving you the play-by-play, one's giving you the color commentary, right? One's saying, we had a run off the right side, loss of two yards. The other one is telling you, yeah, so this defender missed, uh, you know, he came in this way, this offensive tackle, he was supposed to pull, missed the block, that sort of thing. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling us the facts about Jesus. This is what he did. And they all have their specific reasons for writing in the way that they wrote. And then John, writing many years later, I believe it's a very, I would take a later dating for the book of John. John is giving you the color commentary. He's, he's going back to the 30,000 foot view. And let me, let me just interpret this for you. So John's doing a different thing than the synoptic gospels are. All right, makes sense. So they all have different perspectives, Luke, uh, Matthew, and Mark, and they're all writing with a little bit different aims and goals. To to make known that Jesus is Messiah, that's the ultimate goal, but maybe different target audiences and different emphases um, within that. So as we do some comparison, that'll come out. One of the facts that begins to come out as we study the Gospel of Luke is Luke was very concerned with the mission to the Gentiles. So the world could be divided really into two big blocks in the Hebrew mind in the first century and going back from that. There were people that were Jewish and there were people that were not, all right? So Jew and Gentile, we talked about that. Roy led us through a conversation uh, partly about that this morning in Ephesians chapter three. There's Jew and there's Gentile. And so Luke is very concerned because Jesus comes and he's the Jewish Messiah, but it has implications for the Gentiles. 
you get all these Gentiles that start to follow Jesus. And what do you do with that? Wait a minute. That's our guy. <laughs> That's our Messiah. How do we integrate them into who we are and what we do? And so Luke emphasizes that. So let's talk about who wrote the Gospel of Luke. So what is Luke? It's one of the Gospel accounts designed, I think, with a specific accent on the mission to the Gentiles, designed to point us to and show us that Jesus is Messiah, all right? So who wrote it? Well, I've already mentioned a number of times that Luke as the author, so I've sort of tipped my hand already as to who I think wrote it. I think Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke. But you, you should just know, you should just know that the book is technically anonymous, all right? He didn't sign his name on it. it it's not actually there um, in the original. It's not there. But so are a lot of the new books of the New Testament. In fact, so are the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, John, and Acts, um, which was written by Luke as well, along with the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Hebrews. So we actually have a number of books in the New Testament that are technically anonymous. We don't have attribution right there clearly. Sort of like Paul says, I'm signing this with my own hand. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's biographical material. It's very clear, very clear. Now, there's not many of these that are in question, really, as to who wrote it. It becomes very obvious as you study these things. But Hebrews is one that there's still major question marks about who wrote the, the book of Hebrews. And there's different theories, and I've read a bunch of them, and I, I'm going to side with my New Testament prof in seminary. He takes us through this long, long class one day, and he walks us through all the different theories on this person couldn't written, could have written Hebrews, or this person, or this person, or this person. He gets right to the end. Right at the end of class, he said, do you want to know who wrote the book of Hebrews? We're all like, the secret, the mystery. 2,000 years of church history has been asking this question. We're about to get it answered by Dr. Thomas. And he said... We don't know. Class dismissed. <laughs> it's like, that was the biggest letdown in my seminary career. I almost got it, but we don't know. But it's really the only book in the Bible, in the New Testament at least, where we really, really don't. We really don't know um, who wrote that one. The rest are pretty clear uh, through different means and ways uh, that we can determine that. So let's talk a little bit about Luke, uh, this one who wrote the book. Um, Luke is mentioned by Paul. I want to read a few of these verses for you. You can look these up if you'd like. Luke is mentioned by Paul in Colossians 4. It seems from this text that it suggests that Luke is a Gentile, not a Jew. Remember, the world can be drawn into two big blocks at this point. Seems Paul is suggesting that in Colossians 4, 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So these ones who were of the party of the circumcision, the Jews. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So he mentions a few of these non-party of circumcision people, non-Jews, Gentiles, Epaphras, Demas, and Luke are mentioned here. Now, he could be referencing something more technical in the party of circumcision. Seems best to understand it as he's referencing he's a Gentile. 
There's some that have argued on a number of different factors here, vocabulary, description of geography, genealogy, emphasis on the Gentile mission, and so forth, that Luke is, in fact, writing from that perspective. It seems that way. So what do we know about Luke? Probably, he definitely has an accent on the Gentile mission. He's also called a physician, Colossians 4.14 that I just read. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. The more I'm studying Luke and feel like I'm getting to know him as much as you can through documents 2,000 years later, he strikes me as a real Renaissance man. He's a historian. He was a missionary. He was on the journey with Paul part of the time. He's a physician. Just seemed to be one of those guys that just kind of has it all together and is writing this collection. And so he's writing and he's making his contribution as a physician. It's interesting that he does focus on the healing stories in the Gospel of Luke, um, a little bit more than the other Gospel writers do. There's five healing stories that happen in Luke that don't happen anywhere else. Um, He does have a little bit more vivid description sometimes of people and their circumstances. So it does seem like he had an interest in that. He was one of Paul's companions. I just read the Colossians passage. And he joins Paul in the mission in Acts. Our men are studying Acts on Wednesday mornings at 6.15, a number of our men have been going through the book of Acts, and we've referenced this a few times, but there's a, there's a number of places in Acts, you're just reading along about the missionary journeys of Paul, basically the last half of Acts, Acts 13 through the end of the book. It's about Paul and his life and ministry. And there's a number of times when Luke, the author of Acts, changes from third person to first person, and he uses the the, uses we. He says, we, you know, we were a part of this. I saw this. And so he's an eyewitness to some of these things, not to Jesus and to his resurrection, as we note in just a moment, but he's writing as a participant. And so this is Luke. So that's who wrote the book. Um, Luke, the companion of Paul on the missionary journeys. Um, he was obviously the one that wrote uh, the book of Acts as well. So if you take the intro to the book of Luke and the intro to Acts, that you could kind of lay them on top of each other. In fact, if you take Luke and Acts together, which it really is volume one, volume two of the story of Jesus, starting from the birth of Christ through the end of the missionary journey of the apostle Paul, if you take that, it makes up about 27% of the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? So Luke wrote a lot, um, a lot, and he's an important person to get to know. All right, let's move on. So Luke wrote it. Uh, So what is Luke? It's a gospel designed to point us to Jesus as the Messiah. Who wrote it? Luke, the companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. And how did he write it? And this is where I want to get into the text proper. So that was really introduction. I'm past the introduction point of our timing of the sermon, but that really was introductory type of material. So Luke chapter 1 I want to read verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is really, there's a lot packed into this little intro. He tells us how he wrote and why he wrote this book. 
when I was preaching, thinking about preaching through the Gospel of Luke, this is one of those passages that I thought, this will be a really good one for us as a church to think about together. There are a number of really intriguing passages in Luke, and this is one of those to me. So he starts out with a word that I think we need to add to our vocabulary, inasmuch. Anybody, anybody wrote that in an email this week? I would love, that would be awesome. Um, inasmuch. So let me, let me tell you what's going on. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. So others have put this out there. Others have put material out there. What I want to do is I want to put my version out there. So I want to talk about this and how the Bible came together, and specifically the Gospel of Luke, as we can understand it here. We are evangelical Christians here at this church. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe that God intended for us to have this, and this is what we have, all right? I want to be extremely clear about that. When we say inspiration, though, I want us to think carefully and closely about what we actually mean. Inspiration literally means God breathed. God put his word out. God inspired. We use inspiration maybe in a little bit different sense. You might say, I was inspired to do my laundry this week, or maybe not. Or you woke up in the morning and thought, and it's a rainy, dreary day out, and you say, I feel completely, what, uninspired? I don't want to do anything. I understand that thought very well, as well as you. I'm inspired to write something. I was inspired to, you know, bake a cake. I was inspired to do whatever you do. Well, when we talk about biblical inspiration, we're not exactly meaning that. There's a much, much more technical sense in which we mean inspiration. I learned this definition of inspiration when I was in college from my college professor, Dr. Yance, many, many years ago, and it sticks with me to this day. This is Charles Ryrie in his Basic Theology, page 71. He said, this is inspiration. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. I think that's a very helpful and good understanding of inspiration. Let's just take apart a few pieces of this. God superintended. Now, here's what I mean by that. Or here's what Ryrie means. God superintended. God controls all things. He is sovereign. And so when it says God superintended, it means that he arranged the boards on the chess, the chess pieces on the board so that he had the right people with the right education, with the right, in the right geography, with the right vocabulary, with the right relationships, at the right time, with the right pen on the right papyrus to write exactly what God wanted written, all right? What it doesn't mean, if you have ever studied Islam, you can learn about the Quran. Many in Islamic thought believe that there is a perfect version of the Quran that's in heaven. And so what happened is when the angel got Muhammad's attention in Islamic thought, he received revelation from the angel, and it was basically a transmission of this perfect Quran that's in heaven, and it was a transmission down to him, and then his responsibility was to convey that. And so it was then written down from that transmission. So you get the picture. 
There's a perfect book up here. It just needs to be transmitted down. That's not the idea that Christians hold to with inspiration of the Bible. What we're saying is that God wanted us to have a book, but he used normal humans to accomplish that purpose. That's why if you go and read, um, you go and read in the scriptures, if you pick up and you start reading in 1 Peter, let's say, or you start reading in 1 John, or you start reading in Romans and read Paul, they sound very different, don't they? Just the way that they argue, and you, you know how that is. Uh, you receive a message from somebody or a letter. A lot of times you don't even have to, if it's somebody you know well, you don't even have to look at who it is. Just the form, the grammar that they use, the way that they write, or the grammar they don't use nowadays, the punctuation they use or don't use, it, it lets you know, it tips you off, this is this person. I'm saying that God used all of that. He superintended the entire process so that Luke knew what Luke knew, was the person he was, so that he could write. I think that's what happened. He tells us uh, something very similar. Let's go back to the words of the scripture here. So many have undertaken to compile a narrative. So there's other narratives the, and perhaps other gospels floating around at this point. There's some discussion about whether Matthew or Mark came first, but there's other accounts of Jesus that are out there of the things which have been accomplished among us. So how did he go about writing this? Well, he had some other sources available. He relied on eyewitness accounts in verse two, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. I've learned this just like you have. I've heard from the eyewitnesses. I've heard from the ministers. And then he investigated everything very carefully. Verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. So he's going through, and he's, he's, a, he's a historian, and he's gathering information. He's gathering documents. This is a massive research project, and you get to hold it here in your hands. This is his PhD thesis. This is Luke's master work at the end of his life. And this is his magnum opus, the Luke Acts account of Jesus and what happened from beginning to end. So how did he write it? Well, he researched, he studied, he did interviews. And of course, we believe that by the superintention of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit was guiding him through this whole process to bring about exactly what God wants us to have today. Okay, so how did he do it? And then why did he write? Why did he write it? Let's see Luke's own wording here. He says, it seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely from, from some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. It may be helpful just for a moment. I wanna jump over to the, gospel, or the uh, book of Acts and show you the parallels between what happens here. So after reading that, the book of Acts opens up with, in the first book, well, what's the first book? Luke. Oh, Theophilus, same guy. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So volume one, it went from the birth of Christ and it went all the way through the, uh, the uh, resurrection and the command to the apostles, the Great Commission. He presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs appearing to them in the 40 days. 
while speaking to them about the kingdom. Uh, and then so he goes on to talk about what he's doing in this book. So he says, hey, volume one covered the first part. Now volume two is gonna cover what happened after Jesus ascended. So he goes on this huge research project and this is what he's doing. There was no other account and Luke Acts serves a unique role in the Bible. There is no other Acts account. If Luke hadn't recorded what we have in Acts, we would have no idea. Uh, We get some glimpses here from like Paul and his missionary journeys when he writes to those churches, but we don't have another one. So I think part of what Luke is doing here is he's filling a void that had not been written about in the Luke-Acts literature. There's no volume that takes us from beginning all the way to the end of Paul's missionary journey. So he's writing that. Some of you I know have been involved in academics. Some of you maybe all your life. I know some perhaps have uh, PhDs that you've done or some sort of a doctorate or terminal degree. When you're doing a PhD degree, I I didn't do it a PhD, I did a D-men. We call it the little D, the D-men, doctor to ministry as opposed to the PhD. When you're doing a degree like that, a terminal degree, part of what you have to do is you have to write a paper about the paper that you wanna write a paper about, all right? So you gotta write, you gotta make an argument for why you need to be heard on whatever particular topic that is. And so what you have to do is you have to create a section and it's typically called the void in the literature, okay? So in the literature, you know, there's this book that talks about this, and you have to review a number of different books depending on, your, on the degree you're working on. You review a number of different books. This guy says this, he deals with this, this guy deals with this, this guy deals with this, this guy deals with this. But what I wanna do is something similar, but I'm gonna contribute in this unique way. So you gotta kinda carve your own niche. I'm gonna say something nobody else has ever said. Now, when I was writing my thesis a few years ago, I told my, was telling my advisor what I wanted to write on. I wanted to write on the glory of God. And he looked at me, he said, what are you possibly gonna say about the glory of God that John Piper hasn't already said? I said, that's a fair question. And so we, we worked through that. And so his point was like, you gotta make a unique contribution. You can't just rehash what everybody else has done. And I think in academia that can, actually get us in trouble sometimes because you get people trying to be too cute and novel um, and come up with new things. So I think it's a little bit dangerous system, but regardless, you get the point. There's, you're making a unique contribution. You're not just rehashing things. And so I'm not using Luke to defend a particular academic um, practice here, but I do think there's a similarity. Like Luke's looking around and he's saying, I think this is important. I think somebody needs to write a single volume, beginning of life, of Jesus to the establish, through the establishment of the early church. And so that's exactly what he does. That's why he wrote it. So he wants an account that does that. And then he also wrote it so that most excellent Theophilus would have his faith built by knowing the truth. He's writing so that he can know, what's he say? For certainty, the things concerning that you have been taught. Most excellent Theophilus perhaps a Roman official, perhaps just a respected businessman of status. We're not sure exactly who this guy was, but he was obviously very important and probably known to the early church. So let's apply this a little bit. I know some of that was a little bit theoretical, but I want to get into why this is all significant and matters for us. Why does it matter? If somebody asked you the question, how would you respond to that? Hey, what'd you do in church today? 
we started the Gospel of Luke. Who cares that Luke was written? What would your response be? Why is that significant? Why do you spend your Sundays studying that Bible anyways? Don't you have things to do? Don't you know it's a pretty day? The fish are probably biting. The sheep that are definitely biting right now. What, what, would, you, what would you say? How do you, how do you validate? Why do we say this is important? Why does it matter? Why does Luke matter? Why do the Gospels matter? Why does the Bible matter? A few things. Why does it matter? One, our faith is historical. This is so significant and important. Our faith is historical. Luke's burden is for Theophilus and subsequently followers after Theophilus of Jesus would know that the Christian faith roots in history. If you rip out the historical roots of the gospel, you don't have a gospel. It's not just a story. I noted in my sermon title that this is more than a myth. When we hear the word myth, we hear maybe just an interesting tale. Many of us think of Greek mythology. Greek mythology and other myths as well, it's stories that help convey a worldview. That's really what those myths are doing. Um, why do we have lightning? Well, because Zeus is mad. There's a God up in the heavens. Why do we have rain? Why did this army win the battle? And so you come up with some sort of a story that helps explain the world around you. Some people have called the Bible, this phrase is gonna bother some of you, so hang in with me, let me explain it. Some people have called the Bible a true myth. Now, here's what they mean by that. Don't think of myth as something untrue. A myth is a story that conveys worldview, a story that communicates. And so it's the story that helps us understand reality. It's the story of Christ and his resurrection, the Messiah coming in human flesh. And it explains the world. It's, a, it's true. It's true. But it also explains everything about the world to us. So our faith is historical. If you could remove the resurrection and you could prove without a doubt that the resurrection did not happen, you have no gospel left. It happened. It had to have happened or there is no salvation. So our faith is historical. That's why a gospel like Luke matters so much. These things really did happen. They're true. Number two, our faith operates in community. Now, notice a couple of things here. You may have noticed this as I was reading it. Luke says in verse one that these things have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And it also seemed good to me to deliver this message to you. There's this idea that this is growing, the gospel is growing in community. We're gonna see as we study Luke and then also as we study or as we reference Acts along the way that this is a story that once it takes root in a community, it changes people, it changes lives. The gospel changes everything. It operates in a community. And then lastly, our faith is reasonable. You hear sometimes people talk about taking a leap of faith. Well, how do I come to believe in Jesus? Well, you just gotta take a leap of faith. And when I hear leap of faith, that's not all that encouraging, is it? I kind of picture this chasm and you're, you're, or a gigantic gap, 
and you're trying to jump across it, and you're like 50-50 on whether you can make it or not, and there's a big drop below you, how does that feel? That's, that, to me, communicates, well, that's a leap of faith. Like, I'm just going to go for it, unless you see what happens. I don't think that's what God is calling on Christians to do. Actually, what Luke is saying is that this, this actually makes a ton of sense, Theophilus. You should read it. <laughs> you should read who Jesus was. You should read about all the healing stories I'm going to tell. You should read about the teaching of Jesus. You should read about the Lord's Prayer. You should read about the crucifixion, about Jesus' betrayal. You're not going to believe what's in this book. And when you read that and you come to understand it, you're going to see this isn't a leap. This is actually very reasonable to believe that these things are true. Very true. You may have heard about the little kid in Sunday school class and the teacher says, so somebody tell us what faith is. Little kid says, it's believing something you know ain't true. (laughs) And I'm afraid some people think of faith like that. Oh, you Christians, you just... You know, you just invoke faith whenever something doesn't make sense. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, you just got to have faith. Like, that's not really what's going on here. Oh, there's, it's true. You, you, there are elements of walking with Christ that you, you have to accept on faith. I'm not diminishing the role of faith at all. I'm just saying we need to understand what it means to have faith. It is perfectly reasonable to believe. So that's what faith is. It's reasonable. As you look at what Jesus did, you look at his person and work, you look at the gospel itself, ask yourself the story, does this make sense? Does it make sense? And I think what you're going to find is it does. And that's Luke's exhortation and encouragement. Luke has written this book, and it's written in such a way that is, it's a beautiful masterpiece of writing. And Luke has written this in such a way that it is a serious contribution to the Christian faith. You can say you don't believe in the gospel story. But with a book like this in front of us, you can't say it's not serious. You can't say it doesn't have a serious weight and doesn't have serious contribution to what's going on. It's not that. It belongs in the classics. It is a serious, serious work that you have to reckon with and deal with. If you're going to deny that Jesus existed, you really need to reckon with how this is put together. So that is what Luke is all about. That's what he's bringing us to. Well, it's Christmas season. We talk a lot about the birth of Christ this time of year. And I'll mention this a number of times as we walk through the Gospel of Luke and even over the next few weeks. As we think about Christmas and we think about the reality that Jesus came, we also have to quickly, quickly bear in mind why he came. Jesus came to deal with sin. He came because we're not okay. He came so that we can have salvation. Today, once a month here at our church, we celebrate communion. It's a time for us to stop and remember that Jesus gave his life for us so that we can be forgiven. And that day is today. If you're visiting here with us today, we're so glad that you're here. We would invite you to join us to partake in communion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel that we believe, that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death, And at the end of that, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was resurrected. God raised him from the dead. And that those who believe in him have eternal life, and we commit ourselves now to be followers of his. If you're in line with that gospel, then we would invite you to join us today. 
If you don't know, if you're not sure about this Christianity thing, maybe it's, it, it would be best, I think, if you just observe today. Uh, just watch as we take communion. Use this time to reflect, uh, perhaps even thumb through the Gospel of Luke and see how he's written his case for Jesus being real and true so that you can have the certainty of faith as well. And we would love to have a conversation with you immediately after the service. Well, our musicians are gonna play here in just a moment. I'm gonna invite our servers to come up as I lead us in a word of prayer. We'll bring the communion elements to you uh, today as we celebrate this time together. Men, you can come ahead. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us together today to be able to enjoy the fellowship uh, with the other saints. Lord, to be able to look at the Gospel of Luke and remember what you've done. We're looking forward to this journey and seeing how Christ changed so many lives, how he kicked against social conventions of the day and how he broke down the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Lord, what an incredible work that he has accomplished and done. Today, Lord, we focus specifically on the end of that mission, and that was when Jesus gave his life as a ransom so that we can be forgiven today. Lord, we pray. We pray that we would come today with a sense of awe and wonder and amazement that you have come. You've given your life for us, and so now we can be forgiven in you. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.